Here's a few exciting scenes from tonight's episode of The Tom Gully Show. He had made uh, three movies in the Philippines, and he wanted to make one in America. So we made the movie, and I wrote it up with him, Death Machines. That's awesome. It's also awesome that you can say one of your films was financed by bikers. Yeah, yeah you know, uh, some of them, some of them uh, did invest, and they got a part, and... Uh, a lot of them would say, hey, Paul, do I die good? Yeah, you're going to die good. (laughs) And um, what I like about it, Death Machines is the top of the bill, and then the bottom of the bill is Dr. (laughs) Shabako. And everybody knows Jessica Walter from Play Misty for Me, where she chases Clint Eastwood around with a big butcher knife. Mm -hmm. And he wrote that and re-recorded it and put it at the beginning. So our action movie, now people say, geez, it really had a message. And that was because of Adam West. He didn't just take the money and show up. He, he And he gave me ideas. He went through the whole script and gave me ideas for um, uh, pieces of business were, that he wasn't even in, for scenes that wow. he wasn't in. And um, we had a Japanese um, strange woman that ran the killers. And we had a love s- story. We blew up an airplane. We had bikers. We, I threw everything in that in that movie. Now, uh, can you say I listen to the Tom Gully Show in Japanese? Tom Gully Show, mainichi kitemas. Due to some violent content, parental discretion is advised. It's time, America. Mr. and Mrs. North and South American, all the ships at sea, let's go to press. So sit back, buckle in. Place your tray table in its upright locked position and get ready for big time radio, friends. It's time for... Monday, November 3rd, 2014, episode 225. I'm Tom Gully, and tonight on The Tom Gully Show, Paul Kiriazzi is a man of many, many talents. Of course, you've heard him on this program talking about the James Bond lifestyle, but we've begged him to come back and talk about his career as an action filmmaker, directing films like Death Machines and Omega Cop, then transitioning into his career writing novels and turning them into the best audiobooks on the market. We'll talk to Paul about making movies as well as directing people like Adam West, Jessica Walters, Troy Donahue, Pat Morita, Robert Culp, Don Stroud, Russ Tamblin, David Hedison, Alan Young, Kevin McCarthy, Stuart Whitman, and more. It's the action-adventure movie and novel-writing career of Paul Kiriazzi tonight on the Tom Gully Show.
Alert Americans will heed history's lessons. Throughout history, surprise has had a leading role in military disasters. Today, an enemy capable of surprise air attack could leave chaos in his wake. That's why you should be in the Civilian Ground Observer Corps, volunteering a few hours a week to guard our skies. Be a ground observer. Contact your local civilian defense office. If I only had one word to describe this new series, it would be excitement. The drama will be about people caught up in a critical moment of life and death and presented as realistically and creatively as possible. We're tremendously excited about it. We think you will be, too. You're listening to The Tom Gully Show. Well, the last time you were on, like like I was saying, we, you know, delved pretty heavily into the fact that you're an expert on the James Bond lifestyle. And uh, we can't ever forget that. I mean, that's a that's a constant in the Paul Cariazzi experience. But um, I wanted to ask you about your movie making background. Uh, in fact, I've been dying to ask you about it. And uh, as some of the listeners know, you made several films. And uh, I was just dying to know what what spurred you to do that and when you first knew you wanted to be a part of the magic of the movie industry? Well, actually, Tom, the uh, James Bond lifestyle was actually something that I had to learn to continue as a freelance filmmaker. So those are connected. But uh, when I was eight years old, I saw on Disneyland television uh, the making of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And they, they showed the storyboards and the behind the scenes and Kirk Douglas talked and the squid and all of that. And uh, I just said, I want to make movies. You know, that's when I decided to do it. And at that time, there was no film school and Hollywood was just some, you know, just some place. There was no entertainment tonight. So that was a kind of a uh, unusual thought for somebody from a small town that I grew up in um, about an hour uh, outside of San Francisco. So I, I just became this uh, big film fan and um, learned what I could about movies, encyclopedia, and there was a magazine called Famous Monsters of Filmland that talked behind, about the behind the scenes of King Kong, things like that, and the making of. And that was the only place I could get my education other than watching movies. Uh, then um, I started shooting uh, in high school, eight millimeter, little 20 minute action films. And now the the biggest advice I got, um, my father knew um, uh, worked at Dow Chemical, and he knew a man that was in charge of uh, making documentary movies there. He says, if your son is interested, really interested in making movies, you got to get him into 16 millimeter. So right then, my uh, dad took me to San Francisco, and we got a 16 millimeter Bolex camera, and I started filming um, uh, with that. And of course, uh, I did a um, some action movies and one of them uh, won um, film festival, Berkeley Film Festival. And then I got into San Francisco State Film Department and graduated there, made some more 16 millimeter sound action. They were karate movies because I was in karate at that time. Because of James Bond, Dr. No had come out and I saw Bond flip these guys and I got into heavily into karate and martial arts movies. Okay, well, uh, we, we, have to, we have to pause for a second because you've already... Uh, chanced upon something that that I didn't think a lot of other people knew about, and that was 
uh, famous monsters of Filmland magazine. Uh, can you talk about that magazine? Because a lot of people that went on to make movies all refer to uh, to that magazine. And, and at the time, I think it was the biggest subscribed to kids magazine ever. It must have been because now all the directors, uh, Joe Dante, uh, who did Gremlins and Steven Spielberg, they all talk about reading Famous Monsters of Filmland. They had to go to their friend's house because their mother wouldn't allow it in their house. I had the first 12 issues in perfect uh, condition in folders. My mother made them, uh, made me uh, burn them. Oh, my and, goodness. Uh, then I, then um, a couple of years ago, we went to a... Um, uh, celebrity show they had these booths and the guy had the set of famous monsters and they were ten thousand dollars each each from issue one mm -hmm. to twelve showed my mom there you know there's one hundred twelve thousand dollars that i burned up right right but, and um i but got geez. i got to go to a, a dinner at forrest j ackerman's house uh he was of course the the publisher and editor and writer and the main guy behind famous monsters uh, with some comic book people and, and some folks. And his home was a movie memorabilia, particularly monsters, of course, uh, shrine. He had the uh, casts of the faces of Karloff and Lugosi. And, oh, it was just, it was incredible. Just an in incredible night. Yeah, I got to go there, too. He called it the Acker Mansion. He called it the Acker Mansion. And outside in his backyard, uh, he had the submarine from Atlantis, The Lost Continent, which is a George Powell movie. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. It was about 30 feet long. And, um, oh, yeah, that, uh, it was just great going there. He had all kinds of uh, the, the armature uh, from the animation of King Kong, the little wired the metal statue of it that they used to animate. Uh, oh, yeah. It was wonder wonderful going there. Yeah. Now, you mentioned... Uh, getting into film production kind of through your 16 millimeter camera, at least after you've been doing eight millimeter and stuff at the time when you got that 16 millimeter camera, kind of a different time in film, but, but a 16 millimeter, there were actually still commercial films being shot on 16 and it, it was actually a, a pretty powerful piece of uh, technology to have if you knew how to use it. That's correct, Tom. Uh, all um, uh, documentaries were shot in 16 mini mini commercials, 16 millimeter. And I remember, you know, shooting eight millimeter. Uh, you can, but for two dollars, you can buy um, a roll which was four and a half minutes long and develop it for two dollars. So that's four dollars for almost five minutes of film. I asked the guy at the camera department how much a roll costs, and it was nine dollars. And I said, what's the length? two minutes and 45 seconds and how much does it cost to develop five dollars so it's for two minutes and 45 seconds i had to pay fifteen dollars so there was my first lesson in the you know finances movies cost money mm -hmm, mm -hmm. now you mentioned martial arts as well so dr no you saw that and you then directly got into martial arts because i think at the time you were getting into martial arts was when it was making its its first outreach because of the movies and uh, a lot of people were being trained by by very serious martial arts instructors that had you know roots deep into the you know the birthplaces of of the martial arts that's exactly right in fact uh, 
yeah, this was before when Dr. No and From Russia With Love came out. Uh, yeah, they had their di- uh, roots directly from um, from Japan and Okinawa. And uh, my teacher was a second stage from Okinawa. And uh, at that time, there were just these little places teaching them. They, they weren't... Um, a lot of the were, was in Japan town in San Francisco, so there weren't the karate school studios of today that are on every corner and every little mall. So uh, you had to go and, and seek them out. Fortunately, my small ho- hometown, uh, a man opened up a karate school, and he, and he was from the Okinawa uh, discipline. So I was lucky; just opened up right in my hometown. Can you talk about the martial arts in terms of? Uh you know, when you first started learning it and uh, how it evolved throughout the process of your life? Yeah, I was um, just out of high school and going into junior college, and uh, they opened up that uh, that school, and it was uh, three times a week, an hour and a half. First 30 minutes was all calisthenics and, and exercise, and uh, the idea of... I'll tell you, it really helped me in life because you're doing push-ups and you're getting tired and the teacher's saying, 10 more, 10 more. It's very military uh, and very disciplined. And so I learned a lot of discipline to keep going. So when things got tough a couple of years later or after I graduated in the movie business, it was like, keep going, one more. So I learned I learned a lot of dis- discipline. There's a lot of uncomfortableness uh, at times. You get punched or you get hit uh, yeah, kneeling for a long time and that meditation that we do before, uh, you know, it hurts your knees. We had tile floors and you get used to being uncomfortable. So um, not that, you know, being uncomfortable is good, but, you, you know, at least you know how to that you can get through it. So I learned a lot of self-discipline in this serious karate class. Right. It, the uh, notion of getting used to being uncomfortable also preparing you for this interview. Excellent. Um, <laughs> Very good. The uh, the time when you first started making films was also we mentioned the camera, but I mean it was a different time in the movie industry. In that, ind- ind- incredibly independent filmmakers with no studio affiliation and no huge amounts of capital, you know, that are required to make movies today, could actually go out and shoot a film and make a good amount of profit on it uh, and uh, get get distribution. Uh, can you talk about that, you know, time? Did that have any bearing on kind of your entrepreneurial attitude, you know, toward filmmaking or at least getting a film done? It sure did. You know, uh, independents were in the 60s, like Kirk Douglas doing Spartacus and with his own company, Burt Lancaster with his own company. So they were still stars that had power and the connections with the studio and a distribution system and financing through the studio. But when I started, um, uh, early 70s is when Billy Jack came out. Mm-hmm. And Tom Laughlin, totally, totally independent, raising his own money without a studio affiliation, uh, did Billy Jack. And then uh, Warner Brothers released it quickly and didn't advertise it, so Tom Laughlin took over. And what he did was for walling, he rented the actual theaters, had a um, hired checkers counters for the tickets and collected the money. Uh, and then he was he was the big hero to all the independents. And then a lot of uh, independents 
follow that with the four walling, renting the theaters, going out and making a movie with no guarantee of uh, distribution. So, uh, yeah, he started that. Uh, he made that very, um, uh, you know, easy to see and then and see that it was possible. And well, and it was exciting because, you know, karate, Tom Laughlin fighting 20 guys in the park there. So that was one of the first times in an American movie we'd seen, uh, you know, one guy fighting many using martial arts. Well, and the huge counterculture message behind it. And also the fact that he was willing to put his money where his mouth was in terms of, hey, I think I've got a good movie here. What I'll do is I'll, I'll put it in some strategic places, pay for it myself, and hope that the word of mouth, which at the time uh, you know, wasn't quite as uh, hyper-developed a time in terms of communications, word of mouth wasn't necessarily such a bad way uh, to get a, a, a movie's reputation out there. Uh, now you started making these films. What was the first film that you actually, you know, directed, and and how did that all come about? Because if there's one thing I've learned, Paul, it's that every one of your your accomplishments comes with its own set of of interesting stories as to how it actually came about. Well, the first one, I got a group of people together and raised some money and used all my own money, refinanced my car. Uh, it was about $16,000, but what I did was uh, use 35-millimeter technoscope, and at that time, technoscope was 35-millimeter. It was a technicolor process, and you used half-frame, uh, so you used half-amount of film, but that half-frame was long and narrow, like Panavision, and the laboratory blew it up to Panavision. So it was about three samurai going to England to fight in a, you know, London uh, sword tournament in the old days, 12th mm -hmm. century England. And uh, I made a mistake. I filmed it in black and white because I didn't think I'd have enough money to do it in color and couldn't sell it. And it was, oh, it was a tough time. I had a lot of screenings, people trying to, you know, hoping people would buy it or sell it. Made It got on the college market, but didn't make uh, my money back. And then, but because of that, um, I started, you know, meeting people in uh, San Francisco, going to the financial district, Montgomery Street, uh, going to venture capital uh, offices and with my new script. And, and then I met another martial artist, Ron Marchini from Stockton, California, and, and he was a tournament champion. He f did uh, contests with uh, Chuck Norris at that time. He had made uh, three movies in the Philippines, and he wanted to make one in America. So we made the movie, and I wrote it up with him, Death Machines. Oh, yeah. Three uh, killers. One, And now well, here's what I learned, and something that's important for your, your listeners. Uh, when that black and white movie failed with the three samurai going to England, it was done very well, had a great sound mix and everything, but it just wasn't commercial enough. And I swore took me another two years. If I ever got another chance, I'll make them buy it. So we came up with a script, and it was mostly my idea for the plotting, but we had three killers, one white, one black. The black market was, a uh, movie market was big at that time, and one Asian to cover it. Then we had uh, police, and we had a big fight in a police station, and um, we had a Japanese um, strange woman that ran the killers. And we had a love s story. We blew up an airplane. We had bikers. We, I threw everything in that, in that movie. Uh, made sure we had a couple of topless girls. One was a, with a gangster in a swimming pool. And 
just for the poster. So, so it's kind of like Death Machines is a conglomeration of every single thing you've ever seen in every exploitation movie ever made. Yes, and I walked into <laughs> Crown International to sell it, and I remember this 60-year-old lady, I said, I have a movie I want to sell, and she says, is this sex or violence? And I was thinking, what do you have in mind? But, and you said but yes. I said it, yeah, it's <laughs> violence. But then uh, the president of the company, we ran the film for him, and he saw all this, you know, all these different things, bikers and policemen and, and everything, and the three killers, and, and uh, he took it right away. So uh, it was it was a mini major um, Crown International. So it did sell right away. Well, and that's another thing about that time period in in film is that there were a lot of these companies that that, you know, I need stuff for distribution. Is this got the box office elements that I need? The public was pretty much used to this type of film. I mean, you know, there was no secret. They were going to go see action, adventure, girls, exploding cars, that that whole thing. And, uh, you know, that you could actually make a deal with the guy. Here's a movie I made. Let's have a look at it. Here we go. Yeah, you're you're on. Let's go. Let's uh, let's get this thing out to the public. Now, the actual making of the film, uh, how long did it take to make? Because Death Machines has become something of, a, I think, a cult favorite of of people. Uh, yes, yes, it has. Uh, got one fan in Germany says everybody knows that in Germany, and it just came out. Um, in a, a somebody bought the rights from Crown, and they put out a widescreen um, version of it, and I did the commentary on it. So it's still uh, out there um, circulating, which is very exciting. But um, when, when I got together with Ron, we wrote up the script in a month. Um, and at the same time doing pre-production. So by the end of the second month, we were ready to film. We had a six-week schedule, which I stayed on, and we finished it uh, in those six weeks. We edited for another six weeks, and then we took it to Crown International, and it was like 90% finished. But we Ron wanted to see if there was interest. And they took over, and they wanted to finish it and put sound effects on it and music, which they did. So it was it was pretty pretty quick. And three months from the concept, well, three and a half months, we had it down at Crown International, and they just took it. And then uh, six months after that, they they released it, and it opened up in fifty theaters in Los Angeles alone. Wow, fifty theaters i saw you know i saw the the, the ad in, in the los angeles newspaper with with 50 theaters listed um below it including the uh, egyptian theater where they opened the 10 commandments and ben-hur well that's so it's very exciting that's another thing for those of you who don't remember it used to be that in the newspaper the movie section was a huge two or three pages uh, of all the films that were out, and it would be a big ad for the movie, and underneath it, it would show every single theater that that film was showing at. Uh, one of my favorite pictures on your Facebook page is Dr. Zhivago with Death Machines. That's right. It was on a marquee. Now, that was like three years later. They brought it back uh, to Market Street in San Francisco, and um, what I like about it, Death Machines is the top of the bill, and then the bottom of the bill is Doctor Shivago. <laughs> so, because the you know it was it was the action, um, it was now, the action market there. So. Now, the black and white film you're talking about is the 
the Draw Swords film, correct? That's correct. Okay, now this this next movie of Death Machines did a little bit better at the box office, if I understand correctly, and you yourself did did better as a result of, of producing that film or making it happen. Yeah, that, that gave me credibility with the big posters and got it opened up in New York and they had a semi-color quarter page ad for it and uh it was you know went all around uh, america and, and around the world and then out on video and that just gave me credibility as a uh, real filmmaker so the next time uh, raising money for my third movie uh was easier and i've done six feature films and then i've also done uh, documentaries and post-production also on feature films which i love editing and uh, music editing so um yeah that that set me off on the on the on the right path, death machines. The weapons of death. You're you're kind of uh, Charlie Chaplin in that one because you wrote, directed, and starred, or had at least a an acting role in that one. Yeah, I was one of the five uh, good guys that went after the kidnapped girl, and I just just felt like I wanted I wanted to be in it. I had I had appeared in uh, my other films as well, but not not in the lead. And um, there's a there was a couple of stunts I wanted to do, and uh, and a sword fight scene. So uh, I got to I got to be in it. And now, uh, it's it's interesting that um, when people see it, they're more excited about seeing me in it than even me writing and directing it. But that was my dream movie. And I'll tell you, Tom, um, I made a salary from Death Machines, uh, but I didn't have a percentage of it, and. Um, so then I had two years trying to raise the money for Weapons of Death, and and um, I always remember writing that script, and then I had it on my sofa and looking down on it and thinking, geez, I'm going to spend more time and raising money, and I don't have a studio behind me, and if this one fails, it might be my last movie. And I was looking down at that script, and I thought, you know what? I don't care. As long as I have the movie, I'm going to make this movie. So uh, that was that was the decision that made me keep going. Now, I have had people on my show before who are just absolutely ravenous collectors of VHS movies. And the more rare, the better. They boy, they want to get every title. And of course, these people are, are, you know, more chiefly interested in horror and science fiction and exploitation uh, than anything else, and especially movies that aren't on DVD. I know some people that love uh, The Weapons of Death. I mean, they absolutely, and the one guy described it to me as, you know, the reason I like that movie is that anytime two people are in a room together, you can pretty much be assured of the fact they're going to throw down and start fighting each other. Doesn't does, It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter at what point in the movie, but, but that movie is... Uh, also got kind of its own cult following. Yeah, when it played uh, in the theaters, I mean, the audiences were cheering and screaming. It does have a good story to it. You know, a girl in Chinatown is kidnapped uh, for ransom by, you know, a hundred swordsmen up in the hills, and these five guys, uh, family members and friends, go after the girl. And there's bikers as well, and big sword fights, and... And uh, but the audiences were screaming and cheering because we had some good characters. There were seven bad guys and five good guys going after them. We had swords women, thirty women in blue uh, Asian uh, shirts fighting the bad guys, and and um, 
yeah, it, it was a, it, and I shot that one in full 35 millimeter Panavision, so it's a big, good-looking film, and I I um, sound mixed it with um, 25 soundtracks over at the Saul Zand Studios that produced uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So it was a full and big production. It broke a house record in in uh, a New York action uh, theater. Now, so uh, yeah, that's that. The, the, People do follow it as the guy who's raising the money and the guy who's writing the script and directing how much of your story. I mean, uh, there's, you know, tales all over Hollywood of, of the investors wanting to have a hand in the story. And then there's tales of the investors going, whatever, you're the movie guy, go do it. Uh, what was your experience? I had total control. I on that one, I wrote the script uh, by myself and and raised the money. It was a limited partnership, and a legal limited partnership. And it, I think we could have thirty five investors, so that's a lot of investors. And um, some of them, some of them were guys in karate schools, and they you know had parts as bikers, and they'd put in three thousand and own own a percentage of it. If I remember correctly, one one percent was one thousand seven hundred and eighty dollars to buy one percent of it. Wow! And it was a two hundred thousand dollar, two hundred twenty thousand dollar movie. Uh, but no, I had total uh, control. I edited it, and I had total control of everything. It was my it was my movie all the way. That's awesome. It's also awesome that you can say one of your films was financed by bikers. Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, some of them, some of them uh, did invest and they got a part. And uh, <laughs> a lot of them would say, hey, Paul, do I die good? Yeah, you're going to die good. So, <laughs> this one guy really wanted to die good at the end. You might see in the previews on the Internet, he gets he gets he chases the, the good guy up the hill and the guy picks up a big two foot rock and throws it at him and he gets hit. Biker rolls down. Yeah, he you got to die good. So yeah, it was financed by a lot of karate guys as well, uh, bikers, and then I found a, a venture capital man who represented uh, some teachers. Uh, they needed tax write-offs, and at that time there was a two-to-one tax write-off. So um, uh, you know, for for investors, and that's where the money came from. Bunch of teachers investing in the weapons of death. Somehow, that's there's a wonderful symmetry to that. Um, yeah, yeah. Now, I'm going to go through a list here because uh, as we transition into these incredible audio books that you've written, uh, I was on your website today, and and the list of people that you've directed is really kind of staggering. And I was wondering if I could go down the list and have you just sort of comment real briefly on all these people, uh, unless that would be tiring. No, that's and, that's uh, great, and I'm I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of of all those actors that I hired. So let's do it. Okay, Ed Ed Cookie Burns. Well, he's from Seventy Seven Sunset Strip. Um, he was the uh, valet car parker, and uh, he would go on. Um, uh, detective missions he had the song kooky kooky lend me your comb oh, a big yeah. gold record so working with him um you know when i was growing up i was a uh, i had this theory that um you know i was the oldest in my family and i think a lot of those stars uh were like big brothers 
so he was cool. He was, you know, super cool in the TV show. And anyway, I was able to find him and, and hire him. And he's a good actor. He's got a good voice, deep like uh, Robert Wagner. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, he's he's excellent in uh, Casino Caper. Um, a favorite of mine from, um, uh, oh boy, the car show, uh, Route 66, George Shakiris. Uh, George Shakiris uh, is not. From Route 66, you're thinking of George Maharis. Oh. George Chakiris is from West Side Story, the oh, leader that's right. of the Sharks. That's and right. I was able to hire him. He's Academy Award winner from West Side Story. And I hired him and Russ Tamlin. I actually I just about to say, those guys yeah. uh, for the first time. They hadn't worked together since West Side Story, and they played scenes together and in the audio uh, book, and it was fantastic. Well, uh, wow, what a mistake on my part. The, uh, I was just going to mention Russ Tamlin because I saw him on your list. And Russ Tamlin's a guy who was also huge in episodic television as well. Uh, we've often talked about those actors that, that just kind of, they were just so omnipresent on television. And, uh, you know, uh, another one before he got his starring role in, uh, in I Spy would be Robert Culp. Oh yeah, Robert Culp. Um, he well, he he had his own TV series called Trackdown, and that was before I Spy. But uh, yeah, he's he was big in I Spy. He had a big hit uh, in movies, uh, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice with uh-huh. Elliot Gould. So um, yeah, he's a big name. He's that I Spy is a big iconic name. They recently even had an I Spy slot machine. Uh, I played in in Las Vegas, so it still has a following. James Darren. Yep, James Darren was a singer. Gidget, he was in the Gidget movies, and then he was in the Guns of Navarone, big Gregory Peck Peck action war movie, and had the song Goodbye Crew Worlds. He's basically a singer, but also a, a film star. And it's interesting that James Darren... Uh, was in a movie with Charlton Heston called Diamond Head, and his brother was George Chakiris. So yeah. I reunited George Chakiris and James Darren as well in that uh, same audio book. Just recently saw Diamond Head. Uh, Shakiris plays the doctor in that movie, I think, the the brother. Yeah, that's of... for, yep, the, you know your movies. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, your lookalike, Troy Donahue. Oh, thank you. Well, everybody knows him from uh, the the movie Grease, where the girl sings uh, with a, to her uh, to his photo on the wall. As for you, Troy Donahue, I know what you want to do. So, uh, but he was a big um, big star of movies like Roman Holiday and and uh, Parish. So he was. Yeah, oh, but back in the day, when you described a good looking person or or actor, you would say he was another Troy Donahue. Oh, that yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, he was he was very big, and um, so it was great to work with him. And uh, yeah, that was wonderful. I had him on uh, Omega Cop, and we we used him for a day. Now, when he was getting into makeup, I uh, he was in Godfather Two, if you remember, when uh, the sister Connie brings home this uh, blonde man, and. Uh, Wants to get married, and Michael says, well, the ink on your divorce is not yet dry. I don't know who this Merle is, but yeah. if you go with him, you'll disappoint me. I started doing that scene in front of Troy, and Troy says, you know what? My real name is Merle, 
And when I was in high school, there was this heavy set kid. He was kind of shy, and I kind of started talking to him. And I invited him to join our acting class, and it was Francis Ford Coppola. Wow. And there's a lesson. You never know the person you meet. They may be the producer of tomorrow. And I mentioned those swords women in Weapons of Death, and I had sent photos to them. And, um, and one of them wrote back to me, and that's how I got, she got my address. And she hired me to go make a big documentary film in Phuket, Thailand, where they filmed Man with a Golden Gun. So you never know. The extra that you're dealing with today may be the producer that's going to hire you tomorrow. And that's yeah. the case that happened to me. Yeah, well, so. the uh, last show we did, the girl that was the sort of front office you know, Gal Friday at a recording studio I worked at is now just this incredible singer-songwriter. Uh, she's done five albums, and just she's amazing. And, you know, we remembered each other from back in the day because that's you're exactly right. Those connections, you, you just you, you absolutely never know. Um, David Hedison. Wow. He, he is well-known for Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, which uh, two years ago was uh, the series was released on uh, DVD. That's the submarine that goes around the world. It's a big TV show. He was also the original Fly. Oh yeah, he turns into a fly. Uh, and here's the connection: he was uh, played Felix Leiter in two James Bond movies with Roger Moore and uh, Timothy Dalton, and. Uh, he introduces, he does a 12-minute introduction of my James Bond lifestyle audiobook because he, because he played Felix Leiter. And he did uh, four audios uh, for me, and he's great and professional and terrific guy. Nancy Kwan. A Hundred Million Miracles from the movie Flower Drum Song. And she was big. She was on the cover of Life magazine and the world of Susie Wong with William Holden. Mm -hmm. And um, those were her two biggest ones. But she was in Dean Martin, Matt Helm movie, and she did a lot of work. And then she started her own company, film company in on Hong Kong, and she's she's still active. And uh, she was terrific to work with. Uh, McKnight's Memory is the audiobook that she did, played with Robert Culp. Uh, played, uh, he has amnesia. He, he, she plays uh, his girlfriend that he can't remember and who might be working for the bad guys. And it was a four hour audio book, and they were just terrific going back and forth and arguing. I mean, in the story, arguing and doing everything uh, in, you know, in one take, four minute scenes. So, uh, yeah, she was terrific. Well, and that's a hallmark of your audio books is that you go out and find, I mean, absolutely just masterfully skilled actors uh but we'll, we'll get into more of that later um gary lockwood i first uh, i discovered gary lockwood uh, talking about famous monsters uh, magazine issue number 12 half of it was devoted to the magic sword because uh, forrest ackerman was a friend of bert i gordon who produced those uh, sure uh, science fiction. And this is one of the uh, first uh, sword and sandal um, magic uh, movies. 
um, sword and sorcery, I guess you'd call it. And Gary Lockwood played St. George in the, in the, the magic sword where he has to go through the seven challenges and fight the dragon. Then later he became an icon with uh, 2001, a space odyssey. And to this day, uh, he recently, uh, they, they hired him, paid him $5,000 to fly to Australia and to meet with these, uh, you know, a convention for the 2001 science fiction fans. So, um, yeah, he was terrific, and he did two movies with Elvis Presley, and I'm a big Presley fan, so that's right. all I talked to him about. He was in Happen at the World's Fair playing Elvis's sidekick and Wild in the Country playing Elvis's nemesis. So uh, he's got a lot of work. He was in the um, first Star Trek. I was just about um, to say, he he's yeah. in the pilot, not the necessarily pilot episode, but the um, it's an episode where I don't even think Kirk is in the episode. Kurt is in it. Um, the first one you're talking about was Jeffrey Hunter playing Kirk, and then Jeffrey Hunter got sick, and that was uh, the first pilot. The number two was called Where No Man Has Gone Before, and everybody remember Gary Lockwood and... Sally um, Kellerman is in Sally that Kellerman. Yeah. They got their brains expanded, and Gary Lockwood was taken over the ship, and so had Kurt marooned him on a planet. And that was uh, where no man has gone before, a favorite and of uh, all the Star uh, Trek fans. So um, then he had his own television show called The Lieutenant. So he, he did a, a lot of work, and he was just terrific to work with. And I, I was so happy to meet him. And when he came in to do his part... Uh, there wasn't, uh, we did his part separately because we got him at a later time and then edited, edited him into uh, the show. Uh, but he, he just spent an hour with us talking about everything I wanted to talk about, 2001 and Elvis and the magic sword. And so wow. he gave me an hour and then, because we were ready to record, but he, he just gave of his time and then we recorded and it was great. Uh, one of the most iconic scenes in film is invasion of the body snatchers the very ending uh with kevin mccarthy uh what was it like to work with him he was terrific um he was older at that time and sure. he wasn't doing too much work and in, in fact i wanted him to narrate the audiobook of rockstar rising he said yes and then the day of the, to do the narration he called up and told his agent to cancel him and i didn't know why so we got Rod Taylor from the Time Machine, oh, yeah. Hitchcock's The Birds, to do the narration. But we still had this part of a lawyer uh, who gets the goods on the bad guy and calls him up and has this long scene, intimidation, we're going to sue, and if you don't uh, do what I say, you're going to end up in prison. And he does this. So it's just this one long scene, and we asked him, would you do that scene? And uh, he said he would. And he had the scene with Robert Culp, kind of a telephone call saying, we're going to sue you. And he kept making, mista making mistakes. He says, can I do that again? And uh, he'd go a little ways and stop. And Robert Culp, of course, he was doing the other side of the conversation. And I listened carefully, and I watched my script, and I could see that he got every sentence eventually right. And I knew I could edit it. But after he left, and he was friendly and everything, and after we left, Robert Culp told me, uh, if you need me to come back, I'll come back for free. And I didn't know why he said that, but later, when I worked with him again, the reason he said it, he thought, no way would we right. you know, get a performance out of Kevin McCarthy. We had, I knew I had it. 
and we edited it together and people say he's the best actor in the whole show because <laughs> he's Kevin McCarthy. So, but you know, you cut out the, the repeats or the mistakes and I knew we had every line and he's just fantastic in it. Right. Uh, Pat Morita. Pat Morita. I worked with him in Las Vegas on a um, travel video, a 90-minute travel video uh, using a, a Japanese actress was traveling the Western states, and I directed that. And uh, she was a fan of the Karate Kid, so we hired uh, Pat Morita to meet with her and talk with her. And, and uh, I filmed and edited it, um, edited it into the movie. And he was just great, personable and uh, professional, and. Um, yeah. Uh, now he was, for everybody knows, uh, Happy Days. Sure, and of sure. The, and, of course, the Karate Kid, one, two, three, and four, I believe. Yeah, uh, Mr. Miyagi. Mr. Miyagi, there you go. Yeah. Now, this next guy is a guy that, I mean, he was in so many films and on so many TV shows, and uh, the average film goer today may not recognize his name, but boy, I just thought he was something awesome every time I saw him in a in a film. He played the heavy a lot, but uh, Don Stroud. Oh, I'm a big fan. Once again, I say I discovered him uh, <laughs> in the movie Madigan. With um, it was a detect detective movie, Richard Widmark, and he played. Uh, Kind of a bad guy, tough guy. He plays a lot of tough guys. He was in two Clint Eastwood movies. Uh -huh. So, uh, yeah, people, um, uh, they either know about him or not. But he was in Coogan's Bluff. Clint Eastwood goes, is a Texas um, sheriff, modern day, goes to New York to bring back Don Stroud. And uh, they have this motorcycle chase through the park. So people would remember him uh for that if they know him at all but i just wanted to work i was like you know when you have these character actors that a lot of people don't know and you're a fan of you have this person oh he's only mine only i know who don stroud you know right. I, everybody knows eastwood but yeah. me and don stroud and, and i'll tell you he recorded he just had a ball and when when he finished i said you know don i've been waiting to, to work with you since i i saw you in uh, in madigan and he was so he was so energetic, and he loved doing it. He had a big part in the uh, McKnight's memory as a, a CIA guy, and he gets wounded in the, in in the leg. Now, mind you, this is an audio book, and he's before the scene. He says, "Hey, Paul, I get I get wounded in the leg, right? So, can I give give my dialogue holding my leg?" I said, "Yeah, sure, Don." <laughs> it, was, it was audio; it wasn't film, but he wanted to hold his leg while he's standing at the microphone, and he asked me if it's okay. Just, so. a, just a man. When Don Stroud was in something, you knew it was going to be good, and you knew he was going to be he was going to be good in it. Um, I, I, let's. I'm not you. I got to talk about this guy because you and I have talked about him, and he's. He's not necessarily in the Don Stroud category, but he's somebody I want to talk about because I don't think anybody's going to talk about him this week, and that's John Saxon. We've talked about him frequently. And um, th there's another guy that just, he was in a ton of stuff and uh, was excellent every time he was on screen. Well, I was impressed when he did his Mexican bandito accented voice he was in a movie called the appaloosa with marlon brando and people might remember they did an arm wrestling scene over scorpions 
He was also in uh, Joe Kid yep. with uh, Clint Eastwood that Don Stroud was also in as well, playing a Mexican. So um, I had a Mexican part in two of my audio books that I expanded for John Saxon. And I had my agent ask him, and even though the Screen Actors Guild gave us the old K to use union people, as long as we paid union uh, wages, uh, they gave us the okay, but since Don Stroud, I'm sorry, um, John Saxon was uh, on the board at one point of the Screen Actors Guild, he was overly cautious, so he said no to the first one, but it was great because I expanded his part, and I expanded it really good that it added to the story, and I had another man play the part, uh-huh. and it actually added to the story so the next one i had a, a mexican uh, bandit and i he dies at the beginning but i bring him back i thought well, get, i'll get john saxon this time and i'll bring him back uh as a uh, kind of a dream to the hero who keeps talking to him in a dream he appears in a dream and so i added that to the story which really enhanced the story again john saxon was 50 50 then he finally said no thanks so i got another actor but that enhanced the story as well. So I never got uh, John Saxon. But without even working on your project, John Saxon was able to help improve it. He sure did. <laughs> Just the fact that he was 50-50 on it right. as well. Jessica Walters, who has become you know even more uh, relevant to yet another generation uh, as the voice on uh, Archer, the, uh, the comedy series. And everybody knows Jessica Walter from Play Misty for Me, where she chases Clint Eastwood around with a big butcher knife. Mm -hmm. She plays the girlfriend. And I discovered her, once again, <laughs> in the movie a couple of years before that, Grand Prix. She was uh, the girlfriend of James Garner in that big Cinerama John Frankenheimer race movie. So when I got to uh, direct her, now that was for a 30-minute commercial I did up in Se uh, Seattle, kind of a how-to uh, thing about insurance. Won a, it won an uh, award at the Atlanta Film, second place Atlanta Film Festival. And I had Greg Morris on that as well from Mission Impossible. So on my website, you'll see a picture of me and Jessica Walter and Greg Morris. So working with her, she's very professional. I think at one point she was president of the Screen Actors Guild, or at least a top-ranking um, official. So, um, yeah, it was great working with her. I had a lot of questions about working on Grand Prix and working uh, Play Misty for me. And she had a TV show called uh, Detective Amy Prentice. Detective. Yeah, Amy Prentice. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Adam West. Well, everybody knows him from Batman, the icon from Batman. And um, Ron Marchini, who produced Omega Cop, he also produced the first, my, my second movie, Death Machines, and then uh, my sixth movie, uh, Omega Cop. Ten years later, another example of do a good job, be cordial, be an ambassador of goodwill, and you might be hired ten years later by the same guy. Uh, he got Adam West. Um, I had him for two days on Omega, Omega Cop. He plays the head of the uh, policeman of the future. I shot all his scenes in two days. And he added so much to the script. When he showed up, he had script ideas. He wrote an opening narration for Omega Cop about the ozone layer, layer 
And, um, wow. Uh, yeah. And this was like 10 years before all that became, you know, the ecology and, and, uh, be, that became popular. So that opens the show talking about, uh, you know, the, the ozone layer looked like a torn up old fish net and the sun rays came in and made the world go to hell. And he wrote that and re-recorded it and put it at the beginning. So our action movie, you now people say, geez, it really had a message. And that was because of Adam West. He didn't just take the money and show up. He, he And he gave me ideas. He went through the whole script and gave me ideas for um, uh, pieces of business where, that he wasn't even in, for scenes that wow. he wasn't in. He went through the whole script with me with his ideas. That's awesome. So uh, there's a guy who uh, more than fills... Uh, his position. And that's one thing I learned as a freelance or any business. If you can more than fill your position, uh, you know, you'll be promoted or, or, or moved up or you'll, you know, get to the next level. Yeah. So he was terrific. Well, uh, here's a guy that in his day was considered, you know, amongst leading men, one of the best dramatic actors and how soon we forget, uh, Stuart Whitman. Yeah, Stuart Whitman, um, everybody knows him from the John Wayne uh, movie, Comancheros, I believe, uh, was the name of that. He was in The Longest Day with uh, uh, John Wayne. Uh, he starred in The Magnificent Men in the Flying Machine. Um, he, he got uh, nominated for Best um, Actor uh, Performance by the, for the Academy Awards Um I can't remember the movie, psychological thriller, and uh, which he didn't win. He said uh, he split with Paul Newman, and Paul Schofield won for Man of All Seasons, kind of a out of left field. Yeah. So he didn't win on that. But oh yeah, he's a man's man. He goes all the way back to George Powell's When Worlds Collide. You'll see him as an extra in there, uh, very prominent. He's got a couple of lines, bit player. So he has a lot of film history. He was in Darby's Rangers with um, Ed Burns and James Garner. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that's a young boy's favorite movies, you know. Uh, so yeah, he was he was terrific uh, to work with and got along well. You know, all these actors—they're all professionals, you know—and they didn't they didn't you know condescend or think it was a low budget movie or any of that. They came, they knew their lines, they did the work, they respected what we were doing. They were fun. They contributed. So, um, you know, if you ever get into a production, I'm talking to your listeners, you know, if they ever get into a production they think might be small or beneath them, uh, well, these big, you know, Academy Award winning actors like George Chakaris and nominated ones like uh, Stuart Whitman, they gave it their all and were just as professional as if they were on an Alfred Hitchcock set. So was Rod Taylor, who was on an Alfred Hitchcock set. <laughs> and uh, a couple of these guys, Stroud and Rod Taylor, have been on a Quentin Tarantino set. So Yeah, that's yeah. right. Rod Taylor was um, was on Inglorious Bastard. He, he played uh, Winston Churchill. That's right. And Don Stroud played the sheriff, not the marshal. Uh, in the uh, beginning of Django, that's correct. So uh, I didn't know. And Russ Tamlin was in that same scene as with his daughters. One of the town, he was kind of a doctor, one of the townsmen. Oh wow, I didn't know that. So, 
Yeah, Quentin um, hired him. He comes out out of a swinging door bar and says a, says a line as Django rides into town. Then Django looks up in a window and sees Amber Tam- Tamblin, Russ's daughter. Oh wow, that's that's I, so, I love Quentin Tarantino, and and not just for stuff like that, but finally, uh, Alan Young Wilbur from Mister Ed, and is many other things as well. Yeah, and uh, notably for me, The Time Machine. He played George, uh, I'm the, Rod Taylor's friend in The Time Machine, and he does two parts. He plays his own son as uh, as Rod Taylor goes into the future, and that was a, a big deal uh, for me. I had two guys from The Time Machine. So um, <clears throat> he worked uh, on, um, on two of my audio books and did McKnight's Memory. He played the... Uh, he played the, um, the president of a school that fires uh, uh, Robert Culp in, a, in flashback in McKnight's memory. And then he has a larger part in the uh, audio book, My Casino Caper. Well, and so he's just such, a joy to work with him. In a, in a tremendously gifted voice actor. Yes, he had a lot of radio experience. And uh, he, he had one... It was a couple of years ago when we recorded the, for the second time and his new book came out and I had read it. And um, he talked about being up in a brothel in the 50s or late 40s in L.A. And as a joke, he pulled out a fake badge, a sheriff's badge, and says, this is a raid. Everybody's under arrest. And everybody starts screaming and running. And when I met him, I, I told him, don't do that again. You could have been shot by some gangster. Or- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he laughed. But it's true. He did, he did that. And boy, that is dangerous. Don't, yeah, that's, I've, don't I, do that again, Alan, I told him. I'll write that down. It's on my list of things never to do. Yeah. Uh, now, you were doing film and, and producing films and, and various types of things like that. When did you start to transition into more of a novel writing and then when did that lead to what was probably an inevitable transition to these incredible audiobooks given your production background i'll tell you the exact moment and it was because of quentin tarantino's pulp fiction i had tried to add scripts and i tried to get financing for my seventh movie it was a couple of years i couldn't get it done and i always have i have this I always wanted to create something you know mm-hmm. have it have it made you know the movie or book whatever and when i saw pulp fiction i and i saw how it wasn't like an action film the story relied on the flashbacks and the use of dialogue it was all character dialogue driven and i thought this this is so clever it could even work as a book and be just as clever and I thought, aha, book. Well, if I can't get a movie finance, maybe I'll write, I'll novelize one of my scripts, turn it into a novel, and use that as a, as a tool to sell the script and get a movie made. So I, I wrote a novel of it, and then I thought, well, I'd like to do it as an audio book. And I thought I'd get one, uh, one reader, like Kevin McCarthy, because I had his audio book reading the uh, novel of Psycho, when he did an incredible job on that. And uh, then I thought, well, why don't I just do it full cast? And then, well, if I'm going to do it full cast, why don't I just put sound effects and music, make it like an audio movie? 
So that's how I got into the audiobooks, all the while intending to use them as a tool to uh, to make them, you know, to sell the scripts and make a movie out of that. So that's that's where that came. But it was because of Pulp Fiction it was so cleverly written by Quentin Tarantino. I thought it would be just as good a work of art if it was a book because it's all dialogue driven, and that's that's how I got into the audios. Well, as you know, I'm a tremendous fan of the old radio dramas, and I just don't think there's any substitute for you know, really good voice actors portraying, you know, what you've written and, and the productions that you've, that you've managed to produce are just, you know, obviously the, the writing is good and the stories are great if you were just sitting there reading them yourself. But the fact that you've gone and gotten these people who are uh, from a background of of just great dramatic acting, but also a lot of them, as you mentioned, they have you know experience in in radio back in the day when that's that's where the masters practiced their craft. Yeah, that's correct. And you know, when you as you were uh, saying that, I remembered um, Robert Culp, and he had never done a an audio book and he did the first one and he had a lot of scenes with James Darren. James Darren was the rock star and Robert Culp played his pushy agent and they were doing arguing scenes in the story and we finished and wrapped it up and um, I heard him say to James Darren, this is the first one I've ever done. They're fun. <laughs> you know, so yeah, a good actor is able to adjust and my thing was I didn't want it to sound like a radio show like an over-the-top performance. So sometimes some of the actors uh, would um, enunciate even more and exaggerate and say, hey, let's go down the stairs. So, But none of the actors uh, did do that, but I kept my ears open for that. And they just did it as a movie. And in fact, I would tell them before, we're this, just play this like a movie, that let the microphone pick up how you talk. So I gave them that briefing, briefing and one time was enough. They... Uh, they did it. So even the ones that hadn't done uh, radio or audio dramas, uh, they knew their stuff. They were prepared too, you know. So, well, the uh, good, the the my favorite, I think, radio series is Gunsmoke, and it's not because of the subject matter. A lot of it is the way it's produced, and uh, you know, voices fall off mic like they would if you were in the room. You wouldn't necessarily hear everything, and and uh, it just sounds real. I guess is for lack of a, a better more elaborate explanation but your latest uh uh offering the mexican swimmer uh i was riveted just reading reading it uh and then and then you you produced it into just something fabulous can you talk about that yeah it was interesting because uh it's written in the first person in the present tense so he says i walk into the into the room and I see a man and he sits next, next to me. And, uh, and I was going to use one actor to do it. And he was going to do the voices. There's women in it and changes his voice a little bit. And he did such a great job. And the thing I didn't know, I knew I could put some music in there, some transitions and maybe some ambience, but then I started putting more and more sound effects, and it worked. I even got fight scenes where the guy, you know, the, the narrator saying, I hit him with a, 
in the face and I hit him with a lamp and he fell to the ground and grabbed his gun. And while that's going on, I got the effects and it actually works. And uh, the more it worked, the more effects that I uh, kept putting in. So that was my big lesson. You can have a total effect um, uh, soundtrack even with uh, one actor reading or one narrator, whether it's in the first person or in the third person. So that was very exciting. Uh, the results uh, came out uh, very well. Well, it's got to be exciting because you're the guy that wrote it, you know. So as opposed to writing something and handing it off to someone else to be produced, you can actually kind of be the gauge of is this kind of the world that I created and is this how much of it I want to reveal to the person that's listening? Yeah, exactly right. And, you know, for your for your listeners, uh, somebody that is not a famous writer like like uh, Stephen King or or the others, um, we have us, you know, unknown writers and trying to build our audience. We have to grab the audience right away. Stephen King, you let him, you you know, you give him 20 pages before he gets into it, but we have to grab him right away. And that's something that uh, your listeners that uh, are thinking about writing a book and perhaps recording it as an audio to think of their audience and you got to grab them in the first uh, first page with a with a interesting premise that makes the uh, reader say oh, I think I'll read one more page all right one more page one more page yeah so you got to keep that in mind well in terms of actually having written something and now it's time to get it in front of as many people as possible I know that you have been successful getting things into Kindle and Amazon and, and whatnot. Can you describe what you know the prospective author should do as far as preparing themselves to get their work distributed and, and out there? Well, of course, the first thing, and a, a lot of uh, writers um, uh, don't want to take the time, but you have to get a couple of uh, people to read it and correct the mistakes because the spelling, you know, it's the first thing. Uh, then... And I'd recommend, I learned this from, I have a real uh, Kindle expert uh, man that, that make, turns my uh, Microsoft uh, Word um, uh, programs into Kindles. Uh, double space your paragraphs. Makes it easier to read uh, for people. And that's a trick. And what I've, I think I invented, but I wanted to keep control of my audios. I didn't want to give them to Audible and um, just let them, you know, bury it. You know, they have an acquisition department. They like to acquire, but they don't necessarily advertise it. So I like to keep control. So what I do, I have my Kindle as a book. And then at, at the end, there is a link that goes to this um, download company called Hightail.com. Anybody can can use, and they hold files. And the, um, the person who purchases the Kindle book, you set your own price. You get 70% if you keep it between 3 and $10. And, um, and then you can have a link to your audio that people, that, that's kind of a bonus um, for uh, people that purchase the Kindle. So it's a Kindle book that has a link to the audio where people can download it. So um, I think I'm one of the first ones to do that kind of invented it myself, but maybe there's others people doing it. Now, recently, my Kindle man has told me that on iTunes, you can actually now embed your audio into your book on iTunes. So the technology is all changing in favor 
for us independent um, writers and audio producers. Very exciting time. Excellent. Now, you're going to be at something called Spy Fest. What is well, two, Spy Fest? Yeah, 2002, um, they had this um, on the Queen Mary ship um, in California, Southern California. Uh, they they had a three day event called Spy Fest, and they had all these actors and Dave, David Carradine, Robert Culp, and um, big all these booths. It was just a big event. I think there was fifty. Uh, David Hedison was there. That's where I first met David Hedison. So it was a big everything that had to do with spies and and museum and the Bond cars, and they had it there at the Queen Mary. And um, I was uh, brought in to open and close uh, the show the first day and the last day, um, teaching my James Bond lifestyle techniques. And the producers of that Spy Fest are now planning, uh, right now in the stages, they're negotiating to do another Spy Fest, but in Las Vegas at the Riviera uh, Casino Hotel where they filmed uh, Diamonds Are Forever, and they're, gonna, they're trying to get it um, uh, put on for Labor Day 2015. They're negotiating now, so uh, people just have to search Spy Fest or contact your show to know when those dates are actual and firm. Gotcha. And I, I will be there, and they're going to have a lot of uh, actors. It's going to be a great event in Las Vegas. Now, we asked you the lightning round questions last time, so I had to write new ones. So here's, here's your new lightning round questions, if, you're, okay. if, you're, if indeed you're ready. I'm ready. All right. What's the favorite book you've ever read? The Picture of Dorian Gray, and that's the man who, the young, handsome man who says, I want to remain handsome, and I hope this life-size portrait that was done of me becomes old and not me. Not only and all my evil deeds will go on the portrait's face. And that's also uh, Alfred Hitchcock's uh, favorite book as well. That's by Oscar Wilde. Yes. Uh, if you could pick any film to be on a double bill with death machines, what would it be? You know, I actually got to pick one <laughs> when Death Machines came out in my local area. The, the, I was with the theater manager. So, what, what do you what do you want to to play with it? And I, it's Triple Irons. It was the it was also called the New One Armed Swordsman. So, I actually chose that one to be on a double bill with um, with that and with my movie. Excellent. So, I actually got to do it. Excellent. Uh, who's your favorite Bond girl of all time? The uh, the Japanese girl from um, You Only Live Twice, the one that gets poisoned, the first uh, Japanese girls, Akiko Wakabayashi, and she's sleeping with James Bond, and the ninja drops poison down a thread yeah. to get Bond, but it goes into her mouth. So she's at the beginning. You know, Mr. Bond will see you, would like... Mr. Bond, uh, Mr. Anderson would like to see you alone. Yeah. So, yeah. And okay. She rescues Bond in the white uh, convertible, picks, picks him up. So, yeah, I like her. Okay. Uh, who would win if Bruce Lee and James Bond got in a fight? Wow, that is a great question. Uh, I guess Bond would win because of his, uh, his ingenuity. 
Bruce mm-hmm. Lee would rely on his physical skill, like Odd Job did in Fort Knox. Yeah. And Bond would figure out how to electrocute Bruce Lee. <laughs> okay. Uh what is the best way to pass the time when you fly over from Tokyo? Oh, well, I uh, I have my iPad and I get a bunch of movies on it that I want to see and uh, or audiobooks and and audiobooks. So I watch movies on my iPad and listen to audiobooks. And it's interesting, I like otherwise i like to in other situations of course i like to watch a movie straight through but somehow on an airplane i jump around movies 20 minutes of one jump to another <laughs> one I, I don't know just to kind of keep me interested you know so right that's something i do only on the airplane i don't know why <laughs> what about living in japan would surprise most americans i'll tell you for sure what'll surprise them like living in japan is like living in america because there's a starbucks on every corner <laughs> there's kentucky fried chicken mcdonald's the movie theaters uh the movies are in english and they have japanese subtitles so you you know you walk around some of the the smaller local areas and uh it's just like you're in america wow now uh, can you say i listen to the tom gully show in japanese Tom Gully show Mainichi Kitimas. Wow. I, I listen I, every day. I can barely speak English and you can speak <laughs> Japanese. Uh, what's up next for you? What's do you have do you have any new projects on the horizon? I know you're doing voice work now and uh, I have to imagine that you're already starting to think about your next audiobook. I have a Kindle audiobook that I finished that's already on Amazon called Wicked Players, about two uh, middle-aged beautiful women that need money and go to Las Vegas to uh, run a scam to make money. And uh, I want to do an audio of that, full cast drama audio. And I like the Mexican swimmer so much that um, I'm doing a part two and a final part, so I'm writing that up. I'll put that on Kindle, and then I will uh, do the audio on that as well. And I'm, I'm still trying to get movies made and working with a producer that I worked with before, trying to get maybe Wicked Players as a movie or McKnight's Memory. So he's got the audio of McKnight's Memory. And I have scripts of all my projects. So that hope is still there. Looking forward to Spy Fest. I think it's going to reinvigorate uh, you know, my James Bond lifestyle um, uh, book. It, it's always selling, but I think it'll jump it up to the next level. To have, uh, they're they're going to have corporate sponsors, and it's going to be a big show, and I'm going to be part of that. They put me on the board of advisors for that, so uh, I got a lot of things cooking. It's a it's a very exciting time. Awesome. Well, we always enjoy having you here on the program, and anytime you want to come and talk to us about anything, let me know, and um, you know, that's about all I have to say because uh, I'm not as eloquent as you are. Well, I sure enjoyed this, Tom, and geez, uh, I, I loved you going down the list and naming the actors and doing doing my impressions of them because I'm I'm a big fan. I mean, I I grew up with those actors. You know, age thirteen is when you're really, you know, they are heroes. You know, before you really start, you know, becoming interested in girls and 
you know, seriously and, and you're watching movies and all those stars are so big heroes and they were heroes of mine and that's that's why I hired them. Of course, they're talented, but uh, so I really enjoyed. I'm glad you you had me go through that list. That was a surprise and fun. Ah, uh, who can forget the thrill of seeing the timeless classic, Gone with the Wind? But how many of us have seen the rarely shown prequel to that film, Gone with the Slight Breeze? Through an exclusive arrangement with the major film companies, the Tom Gully Show podcast is able to bring you the prequels to some of the greatest films of all time. In this special collection, you'll see prequels like To Slightly Injure a Mockingbird, Some Like It Lukewarm, Raiders of the Easy-to-Find Ark, Room Temperature Hand Luke, Dance Lessons with Wolves, The Noisiness of the Lambs, an American Werewolf at LaGuardia, Twelve Mildly Disgruntled Men, and The Texas Weed Eater Massacre. The Hollywood Classic Prequel Collection. It's just one of the incredible benefits of listening to the Tom Gully Show podcast. Remember, this special offer won't last forever. So act now and get a free ice crusher. We'd like to thank Paul Kiriazzi for sharing some of his experiences. And if you'd like to get some of Paul's great audiobooks, just check him out on Amazon. It's Paul Kiriazzi, that's K Y R I A Z I. And you will see and hear some of the very best audiobooks you've ever encountered. Go to our website, there's a link there to it, or just go to Amazon and type in Paul's name. Get some of those books ASAP. They are produced in just absolutely the most utmost quality that you will find in an audiobook. Folks, we'd really appreciate it if you'd share this on your various Facebook pages. Trying to spread the word means trying to spread our little show here. We'd appreciate it if you'd like the Tom Gully Show, not me, but the show on Facebook, too, if the mood strikes you. And, of course, there's always the TomGullyShow.com. That's where you can find everything about the show. There's the Tom Gully Show store, chock full of quality name brand if you consider my name a name brand merchandise and we always encourage you to subscribe on itunes for free because if it's free it's for me follow us on twitter at atomic palooka too so i can increase my clout and cred ratings because if i get enough points we're all going to go to the aces and we're taking reg dunlop with us that's going to do it for tonight i'm out of here i got to go talk to some people i'll talk to you much later each night jay johnson takes us in with the truth wagon go to jjohnsonmusic.com and get some of the wonderful things there if you would and each night we take you out with catch 22 blues by the hitman blues band go to hitmanbluesband.com or hitmanbluesband.net if you go to the net you can sign up for their newsletter and get a bunch of free hitman blues band songs you should do that right now uh, that'll do it we will see you next time.
Well, the bucket lifts a twig for a dog that's nothing big, but he don't want to. And the dog can't grab a cat, a raccoon can do all that, but he don't want to. And I dream of you at night while you hold your baby tight, but he don't want you. You can see it in his eyes from the way he tells you lies, but he don't want you.